Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, I am not the host. It is a guest host, Paul Lanigan, my father, who also has his own podcast, the Sales Leadership Podcast, where he interviews sales leaders across Mia. His most recent episode is with the Executive Vice President of Oracle, Cormac Waters. Go check that out. I'll leave a link in the comments section or wherever you're listening or watching this below. But for this episode, Paul has a chat with Stephen McNulty, the CEO of Ambisense. I hope you enjoy and see you back in the next episode. Stephen, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Paul. Great to, great to be here and thanks for the opportunity. Looking forward to speaking uh, with you. My pleasure. Do I sense a, a Dublin accent in there, Stephen? You do, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, you do. So uh, very proud of that Dublin heritage up until uh, what, uh, August of last year, maybe sometime in the second half against Mayo. So, uh, But yeah, yeah, from Dublin, born and bred in Balbriggan. So, so right on the border. So... Uh, we had our Meath brethren too close for comfort, but yeah, uh, a Dublin yeah. background for sure. So it's tied into how you're doing in the football at the moment in terms of it how is. you are. That, it is indeed, it's unfortunately, yes, yes, yeah. The Jacks were back, but not so much anymore, maybe. Well, I can tell you, because I've been through this journey uh, as a Kilkenny man. Right. We had our time in the sun and come out the other side. It's not, an, it's not a comfortable place to be. There's a, a discombobulation that take that takes a couple of years to get out of your system where you're trying to come to terms with a new world order, one that is kind of leaving you behind a little bit. If that's that's probably no consolation to what you're going through. Thanks very much. It's great to get off to a, a positive start, Paul. <laughs> it does get better, that's all I'll tell you. There you that's go, perfect. You. Um, so what was it like for you growing up in Dublin? Yeah, I mean, I, I, great. You look, I mean, uh, I've got small kids now, right? And kids on Instagram and you kind of look back at those kind of halcyon days of being pretty free to do uh, think and do whatever you said right so Ireland was obviously a much uh, maybe a much simpler place in 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 the 80s so yeah so I I grew up in Babrigan which is uh, on the on the seafront in in uh, in North Dublin and uh, grandfather had run built his own very successful accountancy practice so maybe you know, deep in the gene somewhere, there's a, there's some aspect of, of entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit. And then, yeah, my father was going to one of many Irish people who benefited from, you know, the foreign direct investment in the eighties and, you know, worked for a very large American company and, you know, subsequently built a, a fairly stellar career, uh, you know, working for different, different types of companies do, doing similar types of stuff. But certainly, yeah, I mean, great, great childhood, right? Uh, like many people, and and yeah, look back very fondly at uh, at all the things we were able to do, and and again, don't know what it would be like to be a child in this time, uh, you know, given the pandemic and social media and all this sort of good stuff. But for me, I yeah, very lucky, uh, blessed with the childhood I had for sure. Yeah, that is an interesting one. I think it's probably well, I say this, and I don't know this at all, but it feels like that children growing up today have no notion it's it's hard to imagine what it's like pre-internet maybe in a way it's hard would have been hard for us to imagine what it was like pre-electricity 
yes in, you know the, the, the electrification of the country yeah um, or TV channels for example I do think though that the step change with the internet is 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 a bigger step change that's my I own agree. view um, talk to me a little bit of the, then about uh, from college to work what what were you interested in what was drawing what what were catching your attention? Yeah, so I, I'd be uh, I I studied engineering in college, um, and uh, I got some great opportunities. Um, uh, I guess throughout that period. So um, I worked for an early Irish startup called Eurologic Systems, who don't really get a lot of plaudits at all, if I'm honest. But I, I kind of started there packing boxes when I was eighteen. And then worked my way up to being one of the engineering team and running one of their biggest production lines when I was about 22. And that was an Irish startup going from, I think it was about maybe 20, 30 million when I started. And then it got to about 500 million when I was still there over that time period. So my college to work transition was kind of, I guess I was very, very lucky. I didn't find myself, you know, most graduates maybe get pigeonholed into a role I was just working in a place that was going through explosive growth and there was opportunities for everybody throughout that time frame. Um, and then secondly to that, um, I then got an opportunity to go and work for another startup from in Cambridge University as, a, as an internship um, called Cambridge Broadband who were building a kind of wireless telecoms infrastructure. So I guess one, by the time I had come out of college, I had... I already had the bug, right? I'd already been and seen both the good and the bad side of working in early stage companies and, you know, the, the, the pace at which it moves, the dynamicism of the team, the inevitable highs and lows. So, yeah, so I, I, was, I think I was quite lucky in that and quite, quite, you know, it really set me up on, on a path to where I needed to go to. And then, like most graduates, when I did finally graduate, I didn't need to get a, you know, a real job and went to work in a pharmaceutical company. Um, the pharmaceutical industry would move at a different pace from an innovation perspective. But we worked on a small team who was commissioning a plant and the plant was getting up and running quickly and hiring people. Um, so I worked there for, uh, for about four years um, and then moved into a sales role. So my first sales role. And uh, that was in this sector in the environmental market. So I worked for an Irish, uh, sorry, a UK-based laboratory. Um, I'll maybe get into what they do and how it's relevant to Ambisense in a bit. But that was my kind of first direct exposure to sales and, and indeed leadership. Uh, it was a business that was heavily dependent on the construction sector. And those of us who have uh, the grey hair will remember, you know, that all crashed in a matter of months in early 2008. And so I have this kind of, you know, Lenin's, fa you know, famous phrase, you know, um, uh, decades when nothing happens and then decades happen, you know, in a matter of weeks. And mm -hmm. I was in that role, I think about a month and the entire market that we had built died. And luckily enough, I had a boss who believed in me and gave me an opportunity to kind of completely rebuild that business from scratch. But I always remember that being a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of my own thinking and my own experience uh, my own capability was really been with, dropped into the deep end and then somebody removed the bottom from the deep end oh. and then having to kind of crawl my way back up and out over 
over a year. So yeah, I, I, looking back at it, it was obviously hugely informative to where I am now. Um, yeah. Some great experiences along the way, both good and bad. But look, it makes you who you are, right? Yeah. What were you able to draw on from previous experience that helps you get through that time? Yeah. So so I guess I guess the speed at which things change was probably the, probably the main thing. Um, and the opportunity that can lie in the in the bottom of the deep end, if you like, and that really, when it's in that, I guess when things are like that, really, the, the resilience that you need to found not to found, but to certainly to grow a company, that's where it comes from. You know, I, I'd be a big believer in the, you know, you learn a lot from your mistakes, and I think what that it just forces you maybe to to recognize and deal with issues that you probably wouldn't do if things were, 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 were going, uh, going really well. So, so certainly the, the biggest takeaway from that time was the pace at which we had to make change, the level of uncertainty around those changes we were making, and we certainly weren't unique in that in any shape or form, and then the kind of realisation that actually in the ether, in the mix of all of that, um, all, of, all of the unknowns, that there were opportunities which we were thankfully able to to kind of find and execute and i think that really set me up then to go right well if that happened well then maybe maybe other things might be might might be possible um which i guess kind of you know gave me opportunities going forward yeah you, you painted a picture there when your time in neurologics was one of quite a frenetic activity uh, hyper growth and then you went from that to a much more stable environment. Did you find a natural home in one or the other? Yeah, d- definitely the former. So I, uh, I was reflecting um, earlier this week, uh, uh, you know, in, in preparation for our, our conversation, and I, I shared with my wife, you know, the MD of the pharmaceutical um, uh, company, who I'm sure if she listens to this, she will remember it fondly, um, told my boss at the time that, I was quite sparky, right? And I don't think she meant that almost in a nice way, right? Because I had come from this environment where things were moving so quickly and and it was really exciting. Um, It wasn't heavily regulated because we were effectively making uh, computer data storage systems and then work back into an environment where it just cannot move like that. It's very regulated and rightly so, and so I would kind of find myself, you know, rubbing up against the the pace at which things moved. So I definitely, you know, I definitely left that role. You know, had made some great contacts and did well. You know, really, it really helped me. Re- maybe round out a little bit and knock the old edges off, but certainly would have would definitely had a passion for the, the, the you know the the the, the hyper growth, the uncertainty. I think. Um, as I say to my wife, it beats having a real job, right? Doing, working, in, working in environments like that, um, which yeah, are quite yeah. kind of rare. Yeah. What personal lessons did you take out of the crash in two thousand eight nine? Yeah. So, so I think I think in terms of uh, I think in terms of resilience. So I think in terms of I had um, I kind of brought in I was brought in to manage a team so for my first role. And we had to dissemble that team pretty quickly because it was completely built to tackle an industry which literally didn't exist any longer. So I, I learned a lot about management, uh, learned a lot about leadership, and then learned a lot about resilience. You know, I remember, I remember my boss at the time saying to me in the middle of it all, 
you know, this is going to be the best training you ever had. You know, you're you're so lucky, right? <laughs> and at the time, going, yeah, of course, yeah. But at the, I do look back, and I would connect to them still, and I would always play that back to them and say, "You were right. It was great training. Uh, it, it wasn't necessarily what I was after, but it, you know, what what I took from it uh, was certainly worth the, uh, the 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 uncertainty. But and I think that's the main thing. It's kind of when you've got to be resilient, you, you tend to find that there are reserves of that to draw upon. And I guess, you know, even building Ambisense, when there have been those those troubling times, you know, I have those kind of places I go back to mentally and go, look, that worked out pretty well and it was difficult, but, you know, it was, it was I had a lot less experience at the time. And if that can work out, you know, there's no reason why other things can't work out. Well, you think back, Stephen, about people in your life, either personal or professional, um, who would you say motivates you or who has, sorry, inspired you, Alain, sorry, I beg your pardon, who has inspired you uh, to push yourself? Yeah, so, so I guess like, like many, I'm very lucky. I, have, I come from a, a, a great family. So my, my grandfather um, yeah, built and ran a very successful accountancy practice that he built from scratch. Uh, his father, so my great-grandfather, was the first ever Garda to serve in, in Ireland. So... You know, my grandfather in the late 50s kind of coming out and starting a company was was unheard of. Um, and then, as I said, my dad uh, is it was and, and continues to be a hugely influential figure in my life. Uh, unlike me, very sporty, you know, very gifted with people, very, very good on his feet. Um, you know, I vividly remember uh, he, he worked for a, a kind of a, 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 a good few of the um early FDI, um, FDI companies in Ireland. Mm. And I vividly remember being brought into his office, you know, in a, say on a Saturday when he was putting computers on people's desks for the first time. And um, and ultimately he went and, and was a very senior VP for Lego in China. But I always remember that the speed, the, literally the speed at which he used to walk around the factory. And, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, the pride in which he took in the in the work that he did and his work ethic, which is incredible still, and uh, and then I think the, you know the sacrifices you have to make sometimes. Like he travelled a lot for work, uh, you know, not when we were very young, but again, I have I, I have I have memories of of him being away and uh, uh, because that was the necessary thing to do. So I think personally, you know, those would be very uh, th- those would be my obvious influences. Uh, and of course, my, my wife, my wife's a very senior executive, um, you know, great, great to be able to bounce stuff like that off, um, you, you know, at night. And then um, from a work perspective, again, I think I've, I've fell I on my feet. There are a number of people who've really helped me through my career. You know, back in the Eurologic days, um, we had one of our operations directors who would have given me you know, roles and opportunities to do things that I was probably, you know, five years too young really to, to deserve, but the business was growing and, um, and I was given those opportunities to do that. Um, and then like throughout my career, I've had very supportive managers who would have funded further education and, um, you know, and promotions into different roles. And then in Ambisense, I have been, I have been very lucky, um, you know, with great board of directors now, but, there are two people on that board who've been here since day dot. One guy is a guy called Wayne Byrne and Philip O'Quigley, uh, both of whom have been fabulous mentors and supports. And, uh, you know, again, people who I turn to still to this day for advice and support. So, um, yeah, I think I've been very lucky. Uh, I, I've had, you know, a, a mix of people, both personally and professionally, who've 
maybe believed in what I was doing and have been willing to kind of see me through, you know, the inevitable ups and downs of the journey. You mentioned luck and opportunity a few times now, Stephen. Maybe you could share with me some of the things that you did to prepare yourself for that luck and opportunity that came your way. Yeah, so I think that's probably a common thing to, I guess, tech startup founders because I guess you found the company based on a belief that something should be different, whatever that difference might be. Um, and we would be no different, right? So we we kind of are of the view that environmental risk is, is a very, very serious issue, as is everybody, right? But at the time, the opportunity was that there wasn't a whole pile of products in the industry. A lot of the work was done by consultants who had fairly heavy lifting to do because of a lack of data, right? So, uh, um, so for example, uh, not to get too specific, but you know, if you're trying to look at the quality of water in a river, I, I always give this example to people, you know, really in the industry, what's expected is that the consultant will take a sample of water one month and a sample the other, and then draw a great a straight line on Excel and say, well, that's what the actual performance is. But of course, you know, water moves, right? So, so we found at Ambisense with a view that product, so products and real time data would be the way to actually figure out what's actually happening uh, with any environmental problem. And so, and so we still believe to this day. So I guess what we did to prepare for luck was to kind of say, well, what we need to do is to is to wreck is to get our hands on a massive project like like every everybody doing sales right so you do the small stuff to get the big stuff but the big stuff was really where we would validate the model and demonstrate that the model had scale and so that's really what we were waiting on that look was to get that first big project and so to prepare for that you know we would have set out the business in the early days of saying well look those projects are out of reach, right? Because it really will require somebody to go out on a limb and take a punt on both the technology, well, sorry, both the technology, the company, and then this different way of working, of getting data in a different way. And to do that on a very big project is going to take a lot of heavy lifting from a lot of people. So to prepare for that look, we will try and access a part of the market where we can do lots of small projects. So where if it all goes wrong from the customer's perspective, no one's really too concerned. And so we would have set out the business in a very atypical way to most startups. We would have been very happy. I mean, I'm sure investors at the time might have had a different view, but from a, from a making progress in the industry perspective, we were very happy to have these small projects, to do them, to execute them well, wait for the next one, and build up a repository of these small projects and then wait for the big one to happen. And I vividly remember a guy, you know, keep me and a very good friend of mine and say, oh, we're definitely going to use your technology on this huge project. And I'd smile and nod and say, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So and then we just, you know, we had a couple of false dawns with some of those bigger projects. And then eventually we were in the right place at the right time, the right relationships, the right product stack, and then critically the right team and Ambisense to bring it off. But to prepare for that to kind of put yourself in that position was really about how do we actually access the market in a way which we can which we can so that when the time is right we have those experiences which will get us over the line i think that's hugely significant it really is uh, and it does with some of my own experiences starting out being told you know i started my business 20 years ago and was told don't try and get business with the the giants yeah get it you have to spend time, first of all, and I, and I think it's often understated, 
the importance of getting your own identity, your own sense of self and who you are, what problems you solve, how you work, sorted out first. And you have to, you ha you have to do that. You can't just study that in a book. You have to do it. But it's also you're building reputation. You're figuring out your processes, how yep. you work together. And so lots of small business is financially it might not be as big as one large piece of business but it's a much smarter way to go because if you go to one big business is that you're, you're not you're, you're not getting those that muscle memory as as a as a business not as an individual but as a business yeah. and how it works and how people see themselves in that business um yeah i i, I would love to see some sort of mba project on that because you're right, so many VC-backed companies, the VCs will come in and kind of go, okay, here's money, now go now, now go get them. <laughs> and that can be a bit premature. Um, what's, talk to me about what the journey with Ambisense, not so much the technology, but just as a business, how you've grown, and, and personally, how it's challenged you and how the organization has has risen to that challenge yeah so so i guess um uh i guess one thing that's constant which i think is uh is important is our our vision our mission is really the same as it was when the first day we started so you know we started the business because i would have sold literally sold laboratory services to consultants so i mentioned kind of taking water samples from a river uh, we were doing that in my old company and still do and giving consultants this couple of data points and asking them to draw the map in between. Um, and so the vision of the business when we started it was to say, that has to change. These, these folks need the information. And as this kind of awareness around environmental issues becomes more prominent, the, the gaps in those data sets, I'm not going to get technology, but the, <laughs> but the gaps in the data will, will become ever more apparent. So the one thing that's constant is our mission and vision hasn't changed. It is about building a product business to use technology to mitigate environmental risk. So our kind of stages of growth are, I guess, um, and I'll, I'll happily say at the outset that, you know, this wasn't all planned in this way, right? But, you know, I, I remember, I mean, I did an MBA as part of this, and I remember, sorry, prior to starting the company, and I remember one of our professors, Brian Levy, saying, you know, the best strategies are emergent. So you start off with a core idea and then you kind of, you know, you, you, you drive into that idea and you have to move around, right? So our version of that is that we did, we did start knowing that these smaller projects were only accessible to us. And so we built a very specific technology we patented that could do a very specific job to access and kind of dominate a very small niche market. But nevertheless, as you say, to to get that muscle memory of winning business, turning over clients, you know, do all that stuff that are the ingredients of success. And so what we did specifically was we were monitoring gas and emissions from brownfield sites, from landfill sites, from oil and gas sites. So, so, so then phase two of the growth story was that first mega project. So that was a, a huge, um, uh, it's called a Lower Thames Crossing. It's a huge project in the UK to build another tunnel under the Thames to relieve pressure on the Dartford Tunnel. And so that was a substantial, probably, I don't know, 20x project bigger than we've done. 
and was again a, 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 a result of doing lots of small projects with those similar customers. And what we did then was kind of say, well, if we can do this at a small scale, we've now demonstrated that it can be just as important, probably more important in a larger project where there's frankly more risk, uh, more capital deployed. Um, but we were kind of in the, in, in, in a tie to, to uh, not tied, but focusing in on, on gas risk on these sites. Then we had another spin, which we have another project, which is still not public yet, but it was taking that same approach but looking at to do looking at it in uh, in the context of groundwater monitoring, so basically uncoupling ourselves from being specific to gas to being specific to the management of risk on these very very large projects, um, and so those kind of three journeys kind of pitched us at a level where actually this model that Ambisense um, promotes can be deployed to manage a lot of different types of environmental risk, and then the final piece of that was. Um, like many companies, when COVID hit in March 2020, we found that some of our market was immediately switched off. And what could we do in around that? So we had developed a product for predicting when buildings would develop mold. And we had finalized that product and we were just about to commercialize it. Um, and then when COVID hit in March 20, it was kind of one of those, we don't necessarily now have the capital to do that. Um, and so what can we do? And I guess one thing we realized pretty quickly was that COVID was airborne and that that very same technology that we had developed had a, had a CO2 sensor in it. And we could start to use that technology to manage and predict when spaces might require ventilation. And so that gave us a catalyst then into the air quality side of our business. And now coming out of COVID touch wood or, or, or maybe learning to manage COVID, we now have a, we now have kind of two markets, uh, two sectors within this market that we've opened up. One, managing environmental risk on very large infrastructure projects, and two, you know, managing the environmental risks associated with kind of air quality. And so those would be the kind of four steps that you know, looking back, were the key kind of revolution versus evolutionary, you know, part of the the business um, journey. I have a question just out of personal curiosity. You mentioned there COVID being airborne. When we know that, do you have any insight as to why we still have sanit we sanitize everything still? Yeah, so there's a phrase that, that the folks, the academic folks use is called hygiene theater, which is effectively saying that people want to be seen to be doing something, right? And doing something is is obvious, you know. I'll call them props, right? So if you walk into a restaurant and you see the hand sanitizer, you go, okay, they've thought about this problem. So some of it is, is, uh, is, is props, you know, things to make people feel safe that frankly don't cost anything. It's the same thing with signage, right? You see signage everywhere. Signs are cheap to put up. Um, so, so that's one thing. The, the second thing is um, there is a recognized problem, which I think will kind of come out in the wash when people finally get to look in, into what happened in COVID, which is at the time when it started, the WHO came out and said it wasn't an airborne uh, pathogen. Uh, and we're very specific about that. And what that did do was drive an entire industry in a certain direction. So hand sanitizers became uh, things you should do and social distancing became important. 
um, you know, just to give you, a, 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 I always find this quite interesting. Like the, the whole two meter social distancing emanates from the kind of fe- fever stick, which was like a two meter stick that they used back in uh, in earlier pandemics, right? So, so that the particles that you cough out at somebody literally drop before they hit you. Uh, and that's because they believed that the COVID particles were big enough so that the only thing would happen when they came out, they'd hit the ground. So when, so the WHO kind of laterally recognized they made a mistake over the course of the pandemic. And then national bodies like Neffet and SAGE, who take their cues from the WHO, gradually started to reverse out of positions that they had created uh, and so we kind of have this position now where we still have a legacy because we we kind of set out about building the wrong types of uh, uh, of preventative measures, uh, and and we have a bit of hygiene theater of people wanting to be seen to do the right thing, and then I, I guess it is a recognition that solving ventilation issues is can be expensive, right? Because buildings were designed to be sealed boxes for energy efficiency reasons, and sealed boxes don't have good ventilation. So even as recently as last week, um, the EPA and the US have come out with this clean air for buildings challenge and basically repositioning things and saying, we re- if we want to prevent pandemics like COVID, we have to both drive buildings to be energy efficient and deliver adequate ventilation to keep people safe. So long-winded answer, which I'm fond of, as you've probably no, got it already of saying. It's, no, no, I, I, I'm, I'm delighted because I, it's an area that fascinates me because... I've been scratched, literally scratching my head for the last two years with this, trying to navigate through what's what's important and what isn't. And I thought I did read a, there was an article uh, about the when it was first acknowledged that it was airborne, and obviously big organisations don't do that quickly. And there's an element of we don't also want to admit we were wrong, and therefore we're just updating. So it's an addition to sanitization yes. we're also going to do this yeah there everybody gets the same face but we still have the theater of everywhere you go there's bottles on the table and i think and, and where i'm coming from is a sense of we need germs to have a yeah. strong immune system and yeah. we're actively undermining that by I, i've seen people in my own life where they're every moment like they're standing you know before they sit down they stand up everything and i'm thinking Please, you, you're actually damaging yourself. And if you don't mind, just on the air filter things, mm. I was just curious. I know nothing about it other than the big picture of what an air filter does. Um, what I was curious is because, <laughs> again, it's it's probably showing my age. I kind of go, just open the damn window. Um, and also, you, you mentioned the, the challenge of having an air filter, but also uh, efficiency in a building. And how do you marry those two together and then the third question i had around it was well are we filtering out pathogens that actually are good for us and, and maybe i'm using that word incorrectly maybe pathogens aren't good for us at all but you know what i'm saying that there's yeah microbes yeah. Or whatever in the air that we actually need and we can over sanitize our environment to the point where when something comes along we don't have no immunity to it and we're screwed and yeah so i mean like like on the sanitization uh, uh, question, uh, like so, I mean, we I'd have a, I have a couple of people personally and on my team who had kids, um, say COVID babies, as I think they'll be known. And, you know, those babies were at home with mum and dad for a year. 
didn't see anybody, didn't go anywhere, and then came out into the real world. And to your point about, you know, immunity, I just get everything, right? Get absolutely everything because they didn't build up that natural immunity by being exposed to people. So I think that is a hugely significant point. And one of the main issues around lockdown was that, you know, we, yes, we shielded ourselves and rightly so from something that was particularly dangerous, but we have created a legacy of, um, of lack of immunity elsewhere. Uh, back to your point about opening windows. I mean, that is what you should do, right? That is the first thing to do. And what we do not, not to get too salesy with our product is we can predict when a location requires ventilation and, and, and the messages we give our customers with our product is open the door, open the window. So we've just conducted a huge project in the UK with huge financial, financial institution. Um, where they wanted to risk assess their assets of you know thousands of branches that they have right, and what we found from doing the project was eighty percent of the locations where there are a problem are small meeting rooms. It's not entire buildings because they benefit from people coming in and out and doors being open and closed. But localized air quality issues are where four or five people gather in a room, and that room and they close the door or close the window, um, and then and then you know, there's very poor levels of airflow and, and CO2 levels build up. So I think, thankfully, it, it, the, the answer to that question is open the door, open the window, mm. and let the ventilation uh, diffuse. Mm. In terms of air filtration, then, you know, th they are expensive, uh, but but necessary. So, so one thing I think might be useful, maybe an interesting metric is um, back in the kind of early-ish days of the pandemic, uh, Rehoover, who would be a European uh, uh, advisory group, advised that you know buildings should pump in fresh air every hour. What they used to do was pump in fresh air maybe once a day and then recirculate that fresh air. And from an energy perspective, that's a very sensible thing to do because you bring in air, you either have to heat it or cool it, but then that heating and cool air can be recirculated. Now, it does go through filters to be cleaned, but it's being recirculated the whole time. What happened with COVID was that a lot of the filters that people use are not small enough, literally, I mean, a filter is like a sieve, right? Mm. And it's not small enough to catch COVID. So the, par the particles just get filtered through the system. And so that's why we got these super spreading events in the meat plants in Ireland, you might remember, and in schools oh. in Israel, is because we were recycling air from an energy perspective so as to not have to heat and cool fresh air. But straight away, when that was kind of not acknowledged, the advice was to pump fresh air every hour. And so what that means is you're heating air or cooling air 23 times a day rather than once a day or maybe twice a day. And so if you're a building owner, building manager, the energy impact of doing that is incredible. Um, and I saw, and, you know, so some of that, many people are reticent to, to do that because they are also trying to drive those buildings to net zero. And so... It's about trying to find the nuance, trying to find the balance between providing adequate ventilation at the lowest possible price and making sure that, you know, buildings are safe and habitable and comfortable for people to be in. And of course, most employers now, their biggest challenge is getting people to come back to work. And that can't be an edict. You know, that ship has sailed. It has to be about here are the things we're doing to make you feel safe and want to be here. Um, yeah. And some of that is around, you know, filtration. Some of it is about mm. is is about other things. Mm. You're 
would it be fair to say that you're in the risk mitigation business, environmental risks? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm curious to know if this is something that affects your business or that you see. So what I took from the last two years, when you were talking about the stick, the the influenza stick, stick, um, I, I saw videos online and it was in Germany and Austria of police going around a market square, literally with a two meter stick. (laughs) <laughs> making sure people were two meters apart. Now, when you see that, or I remember being in Croke Park over the summer, and them going to great lengths to, to, to try and get people to wear a mask in the open air yeah. at this game, right? Where, where you have infinite ventilation. And with that level of... I'm using the term loosely, sophistication in terms of how people's approach to risk, which is, I'm trying to be kind here by saying, lacks all nuance and understanding of risk. Yeah. Do you come up against that, or are you you dealing with people who, who get it differently? Because my experience of the marketplace or society in the last two years is that it's, it's there, there, there's a complete lack of understanding of risk and therefore risk mitigation. Yeah, so I, I put that into I put that into two buckets. I put it into the kind of public bucket and the corporate or you know commercial bucket, right? So, from a kind of a B to C perspective, I think I think because because COVID was such an unknown, I think what emerged was kind of do all the things, right? Do everything, right? Mm-hmm. But what that meant was you know. Uh, you know, we had a lot of anti-lockdown protests, which most people would say that's nonsensical, right? It really isn't. But I think actually the, the issue was that there was no nuance to that either, right? There was, it didn't logically, as you've said, make sense to to have people out, to have people under such restrictions outside, right? But, but, I, but I think what, the rules were so unclear that I think do all the things became the strategy as opposed to saying, well, look, if we all, I mean, I, I mean, again, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So imagine now if we had another pandemic, the first thing they would say is, okay, is this airborne? Because if it's airborne, it changes everything. And, and so the messaging to people would, would be much stronger. It would be about open your doors and windows. It would be all around indoor risk and what has to be done about that. And so I, I think into that kind of vagueness, people read in their own personal tolerance of risk. So some people didn't go to Croke Park because they didn't want to get COVID. Most, some, were, some people didn't. But the lack of actual definitive strategy, which I don't think anyone is to blame for, I think it was just the pace at which it moved and the you know, uncertainty scientifically meant that do everything became, a, a, became a, a, a rule and people just don't can't comply with things like that. So I think, I think lessons learned are... You know, I think there has to be much more deliberate understanding of what actually is required. And let's get people to focus in on doing a small number of things very well so that, you know, the, 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 the actual result is what we want. Right. Because like we still had people in, you know, overcrowded classrooms, you know, way back September 20, when we knew and we did know that it was airborne and that these people, that this was going to be a, a you know a soup for us all to to kind of be, get this pandemic. So so even from a public perspective, mm. 
the, 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 there, the, there was no real rules, so people read into that to their own level of risk tolerance. From the commercial side, it's very different. So the environmental sector, thankfully, has always been compliance driven. So what that means is that there's a specific number you have to hit or cannot hit. So if you're trying to manage air quality, you can't go above a certain CO2 threshold. If you're looking to measure water quality, pH within a certain range. So the industry has always had those specific rules. Um, so, so we play into that by saying, well, A, we can give you data to know whether or not you are approaching that limit and we can give it to you in real time. And then even better, we can predict when you will over, overshoot that limit. We can tell you in advance. We can tell you why. And then you can reimagine whatever operational things you need to do so that you don't breach that limit. And that's really where this industry is going, thankfully, is around, it's not around monitoring any longer. It was when we started. It's now around management and, you know, our customers would, you know, the question I always ask from a sales perspective is, well, if I do this for you, if I give you this, you know, if we give, if you set this up for you, what can you do about this information? Are you empowered by what we do to make a change? Because if not, I'm not actually creating any value, right? I'm just giving you a pre-warning that you're about to get in trouble. But if you can actually do something about it, then it becomes powerful. And that, thankfully, be, is, is kind of the market we play in from a, from a commercial perspective. Mm. Tell me, just moving away from business for a second, when are you at your happiest? Yeah, so uh, I'm, a bi- I'm, a big, um, I'm a big believer in fitness and health. Um, uh, so I'm at my happiest. Where, so I, I was a, you know, would have been a, a gym member like many of us prior to COVID. And uh, not ashamed to say that got into doing the, the Joe Wicks workouts with the kids when everybody was off and really got a uh, really got um, uh, really got into that. So I'm a big believer in that. Do that. Do that a lot. Great for 30 minute. Cannot think about anything else. Just everything is out of your head. And then, you know, the, the day is much better having done that. So that's that's my happy place is, is that. And then my happy place is with my my family. I've got three three daughters and a wife and, you know, sitting down on a Saturday and having breakfast and making pancakes for the kids. It's fantastic. And then, you know, very blessed with a good bunch of mates who uh, some of them on very similar journeys to me and, you know, getting to meet up and have a few pints every now and then is good too, right? You're the only guy at home then. I am, and that's not my happy place. But I have a dog who's sitting here beside me, and uh, thankfully he hasn't barked yet. But uh, he, he might give us a shout before we finish up. Very good. Um, Curious, think about the if you were a normal Foley Minister for Education, and you could make any subject mandatory uh, in the Leaving Cert for secondary school, what would it be? Yeah, I, I, it's a great question. Yeah, uh, I. I so I think it's got to be, I think it's got to be around innovation. It's it's got to be. And I've noted um, climate change has been added. I've noted that that's that's great. That it, that is a super thing to add. Um, so I, I believe that's coming on on stream in the next couple of years. Is it? I didn't um, I didn't actually realize that. I, yeah, I read I read that on Monday. Yeah, I I can't remember the actual name of the course. It's either climate change. It's something around climate change, but it's specifically a course to uh, for students who want to focus in on that area, which is which is great. Uh, and badly needed because I think we have a generation of people coming up who are going to have to deal 
with and adapt to the legacy that that our generation and generations before us have left them. Uh, is it a mandatory course? I'm curious. I don't believe so. No, I mean, I hope I'm right. I, I, do, I do remember reading it a couple of only a couple of days ago. Um, uh, so, I, I, but I think it's maybe a sign as to the level of focus that this topic is going to get. You know, over the next ten or fifteen years. Yeah, I, I'm. I, I'm. I'm a little skeptical. Uh, not about climate change, by the way. I hasten to add. I'm skeptical because I see the behavior with my own family, whereby there is this, we need to save the planet, but I don't want to have shorter showers. I still want to order my fast fashion from China. I still want to go on holidays and I won't take the ferry. Um, and so I'm, I could be completely wrong. Maybe, maybe my, my data set is way too small, but uh, I'm not seeing that. I see people move to electric cars, but then I read also stuff that says the production of those and the batteries and the life cycle of them are also damaging. And but you're 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 a scientist, engineer by background, and you're in that space of of the environment. Uh, am I? Tell me I'm wrong. I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to believe I'm wrong on that. Uh, to which point, sorry, to the... To the point that is that I think we're all signed up, or most people have a sense of that there is yeah. a, a you know, change taking place, but that we have a willingness to do something about it, that we, all generations, by the way, are culpable in this, but the younger generation, I'm talking Gen Zers, who will kind of say this is really important to us but I don't see them other than maybe marching about it and talking about it I actually don't see them make the lifestyle changes and I see it I see my kids you know one of them in particular <laughs> he'll he'll turn on the oven for 20 minutes to to warm up a croissant or yeah or, or completely empty the tank when it's when he's having a shower yeah but the environment is important and and and, and I'm, I'm there's a a dissonance there that I'm confronted with that I don't know how to resolve it. Again, my sample set may be way too small. Yeah, well, I, I, so I think the, the unfortunate thing is that the impact of climate change lags the actions we need to do by, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. So actions we take today, they're so small, it's very hard to see how they add up to, you know, making a change. And I think that's, that is because of that lag factor. I think the scary thing is that that lag time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So it, it's it's one thing to kind of show a stat that says, you know, this year was the hottest year on record, which it, say last year, which it was. and uh, But people still can't connect with that. Um, but what, what you're now starting to see is the kind of, I guess the extreme weather events becoming far more frequent. So we have a we have a, a technology in the flooding sector which is which is still in stealth mode, mm. but its entire model is based on an increase in extreme weather events and what that will do in terms of flooding uh, mm. to towns and villages and cities. Uh, and so we're not that's not our uh, I guess that's not our pronouncement that that is what the owners of the assets we're monitoring believe is going to happen. Uh, and they're they're shaping for that and into that creates an opportunity, right? However, 
that the lag time is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so I, I think it's like everything. I think it'll be a kind of a stick and carrot. So the stick piece is that the, the lag time gets shorter so that people can actually start to see how their imp- their actions or lack of action affect something which is reasonably proximate to them. Uh, and then the, the carrot is innovation. The carrot is what can we do to how we generate energy, how we store energy, how we manage it, how we, you know, waste we create, the pollution that we create, what innovation can do to kind of, you know, correct for some of those issues. And I get the risk that we all take, and it's way too big a risk, is that by the time the lag shrinks and the innovation comes up, that we're not still left with a gap that we can't deal with. Um, and I think that's that's that 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 is really I think where I find the the rubber has to hit the road. You know, those of us who are in the sector have got to develop products that uh, enable a reduction in environmental risk. That's our job, but that can only be some of the story. The other piece has got to be, you know, people's lifestyles do change. And I think I think I think we are seeing some of that in in the in the younger generations, but certainly. Huge, huge ways, huge way to go. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree because I think the even though the little things and people will say, look, the little thing won't matter very much in the overall scheme of things. I think it speaks to a, an attitudinal change that needs to take place, and that's reflected in the behaviour of people. Um, yeah. But uh, as you say, it could be decades before we see the the impact of that. Uh, two quick questions before I let you go, Stephen. One. Uh, your house were burning down and your your dog is safe your family are safe obviously and your phone is your phone and computer are safe and you had time to run back in and rescue one item in your out of your house what would it be and, and why yeah so uh, uh, i um when i turned 40 uh in uh at, during covid and i'd been annoying my wife for about five years that i wanted to get an aquarium and uh, she always said, no, that thing's not going in the house. You'll have to wait till you get a bigger house and you can have it out the back in the shed. And uh, so luckily for my 40th birthday, she bought me an aquarium and I still have it. I'm looking at it here to my left. Uh, so why would I rescue that? Well, again, you know, I, I, I kind of try to reach the things and find things in life that, you know, give you some peace and some tranquility because it's often badly needed, right? And so that gives me peace and tranquility i've got you know 20 or 30 fish in a fish tank and i have to clean it every week and you know the missus gives out to me if it doesn't look the part so i think if i could it'd be hard to lift it don't get me wrong right so if there's a fire you know i'm gonna have to have somebody if it's a fire, help the water might be useful yeah exactly yeah exactly so maybe maybe the fish don't survive the fire but that's something i think i would reach the um yeah. because like it, it, it's something that again i can just switch off for half an hour yeah. Go start something out, get a bit of, yeah. you know, look at it and go, you know, it's, it's a hobby I have, right? So you've motivated me now because I, I always had that desire to get, and I did. And then when we moved offices, it's, it's, it's actually sitting over there and it's, you know, it's a decent size. It's probably a meter and a half long, meter high. Yeah. Uh, wow. But it's sitting empty and it has been for the last couple of years. I've been meaning to, to but then I'm just reminded about, of, of, of how, how often you you do have to clean you do yeah no you do yeah yeah and my wife will regularly credit me and say i didn't think you'd keep it that clean i have to say (laughs) so uh but yeah that's why right because it's just something that really zones in and it's uh i have when i'm doing my um 
off when I'm doing calls, you know, the team, I'll, I'll have it in the background, you know, and people can see mm. the fish swimming by. So, mm. Is there a book that you've ever read that, excuse me, <clears throat> is there a book that you've ever read that's had a, a profound impact on yeah, so I, I, uh, I read Jack Welch's book um, when he retired from GE. I read that when I was about 20 or 21, uh, and that's a phenomenal book, um, uh, really well written, and, you know, the story of an American company and just how big it got. I won't say I agree with every single thing in that book. There's some really harsh uh, uh, management practices for building a team which i don't think people would subscribe to any longer mm. but as a story of business it's a fairly incredible read mm. um uh so th that's probably a book i haven't read it now in a while but it's something that when i do open it i realize i've read it three or four times and it's really the kind of uh, you know ge was a commodity based business when 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 he took over and then, you know, it was really this succession of opportunities to kind of move up the value chain and I guess purely on a share. The, the, the market cap from when he started to when he left was fairly incredible. So I do all, I do look at that book. I, I, it's a while since I read it, but that is certainly one that, you know, I remember, I, I'm sure if I opened it, I'd have underlined bits and I've got post-it notes and stuff because, as I said, it's not, it's, it's a book of its time, right? So some of the practices now, just wouldn't work and shouldn't work mm. but there's a lot of life a lot sorry a lot of business lessons yeah. in that book around the journey and what happens when you try to take on big challenges and 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 how difficult they can be and and how rewarding they can be speaking of books final question if when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life what would you like the title to be well, not if, of course, there will be a book written about my life, Paul, of course, you'd agree. What would I like the title to be? Oh, my God. Uh, oh, God, I've no idea. Um, I wouldn't, I, I, I struggle to put a title on it. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess, I guess one of the things I, I I'm going to now say this is not going to be a very popular book, right? Or a very interesting book, but one of the things I, I get a kick out of and I do well I think is I I'm able to turn I'm able to turn ideas into products right and there's loads of things I really don't do well and you know loads and loads and loads but one thing I do well is I can kind of take an idea and I can envisage how that gets productized and what that looks like and some of that came from experience I had you know early in my career so I definitely think the book I would it would be around that idea of, of how to turn an idea into a product. Mm. As I said, it'll probably be very, uh, it'll have a restricted uh, sa sale, yeah, like but it would, yeah. that, that's something I think, I think I'm good at. Um, mm. uh, and I think regardless of what I ever do in the future, you know, that will always be a, a skill that I try to use, uh, as I said, and maybe it makes up for lots of skill that I don't have in, in other areas. I, I'm struggling with a title. It'll come. The minute well, I, 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 well, I'm thinking of something like conception to reality. So yeah, you know what, Paul? You, that's it. Yeah, we, we we call it that. But but that is a. I, I do think that there's a there's you know I've seen startup. I've read all the startup books, right? As you do, um, and a lot of them cover scaling. You know, literally the scaling journey. But I think there's probably uh, I wouldn't say there's a book to be written, but I definitely think that there's something in that anyone can come up with an idea and anybody can scale a very successful product and the journey from one to the other, I think 
is still somewhat cloaked in magic and you know and it and it sometimes it can be putting a process in place around actually well how do i test for this and test for that and know that i'm I had a conversation with somebody yesterday on our team, you know, about we've, we've, we have a, a, new, a new technology in the flooding space that we're very, very excited about, more excited than we've been about anything ever and ever will be. And we're trying to find the right market entry points. And I said to one of the guys yesterday, look, you need to have a call with this customer, potential customer, but you need to be aware that they're a buyer of, of, the, of the competitor technology, which is 10x more expensive. So you need to know that when you do that call, you're not looking for them to jump over the chasm and say they're in. You're kind of setting yourself up to say, they're going to tell you how amazing what they already do is. And you're just looking for that little vignette of something that yeah. doesn't quite ring true. And I think yeah. that's where ideas become products is that you go, yes, this core idea is great. But actually, get sliding it in there, finding the in, is where the product has to be successful. And I do think there's a there's, there's a bit about that, that, which I think is yeah. worthy of a you know worthy of a of a of a yeah. of a weighty tone. Like, <laughs> if it could do one thing better, what would it be? It's in those little moments of innovation, that little inch forward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that seems like a good place to leave it. Stephen McNulty, thank you so much for being my guest today. Not at all, Paul. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Great to speak to you. Thank you.